your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 9. We are diving back into Acts chapter 9 because I have no more, no more sermons in my hip pocket. Um, I've got to refill that up. And so what we're going to do is we've been going through the book of Acts. And we're going to keep plugging on through the book of Acts. We're going to do it just a little bit out of order, but it's not going to be that big of a deal. It's going to be okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be preaching today from Acts chapter 9, verses 19b through 31 which talks of the events right after Saul's conversion. The reason we're doing this is just because of the timing of Pastor Ryan and when they left for Denver, he had done a majority of the work on his sermon for the first part of Acts chapter 9, which is the actual conversion of Saul in verses 1 through 19a. And so because he's put so much work in, uh, we're going to hold off on that till he can get that finished up and get back settled in the swing of things, and he'll be bringing that message. And so what I'll be, we're going to do is we're going to look at the events that take place right after Saul's conversion experience. It's pretty amazing to see the change that takes place in Saul. To say that the, the change is radical would probably be an understatement when talking about Saul here today. I love the word radical. I might have mentioned this before, but it is such an 80s word. If you were a teenager in the 80s, you know what I'm talking about, right? Everything was radical. Everything that was amazing or cool was radical. Sometimes if it was kind of radical, we'd just say it was rad. We would use that. But if it was really radical, it was radical, dude. I mean, it was really radical. And so this is going to feel a little bit like the 80s today because I'm going to use the word radical a lot because I think it's the word that's best used to describe the things that happened to Saul. I mean, if you really stop and think about it, I don't know if there's a more radical transformation that you can think of than Saul what he was like before Christ, and then what he was like after Christ. It's just an incredible conversion story, right? I mean, there's nothing like it. Like, I spent this last week thinking, who could we compare this with? Like, what is a modern-day example that we could think of? And I really didn't come up with anybody. I mean, I thought about who are the famous atheists of today? There are people like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Joe Rogan, just to name a few. If you're familiar with any of those names, you may or may not be. But these are all people, they hate Christianity. But I'll tell you this, Dawkins or Harris or Rogan are not arresting Christians and putting them in jail or killing them. I mean, as I thought about it, I was like, what, what comparison can we come up with? I mean, I think the closest one that really doesn't apply anymore would have been someone like Osama bin Laden, right? Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, he died before any conversion experience could happen for him. But we all love radical transformation stories, don't we? I mean, think about the things that we see on television a lot. We see extreme makeovers. It might be a house, a major house renovation or a car restoration. There are all sorts of extreme makeovers that can take place in a person as well. You see these on TVs as well. You know, someone gets a new hairstyle or extreme weight loss or they get a brand new wardrobe. But those are just all changes that take place on the outside of a person, right? I mean, it's an entirely different thing when you think about some radical change that takes place on the inside. An extreme makeover of the heart. I mean, no one can make that, some, that, that sort of change in someone's life. No matter how much work a person can put into it, no one can change somebody else's heart. This is the work of Jesus, and Jesus alone that can make such radical changes in the life of a person's heart. And that's what Jesus does in the life of Saul. 
So many ways what we're going to see today, Saul is radically and instantly changed. But just because Saul's change is radical does not mean that Saul now gets a life of ease and comfort. Life is not smooth sailing for Saul. There are threats that surround him. But that did not stop the radical work of the gospel in Saul's life and his passion for proclaiming the name of Jesus to anyone who would be willing to listen to him. Because when God is on the move, by the power of his Holy Spirit, there is nothing that can stop his message of salvation in his son, Jesus. And that's what we're going to see here today in Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in the second half of verse 19 and go to verse 31. If you could stand with me in honor of reading God's word. This is the word of the Lord. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates, the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, the, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. They were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarshish. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Let's pray. Father God, it is amazing to see this radical transformation that you do in the life of Saul. And I pray that you would help us today to be changed as well. We want the gospel to be continually making a radical change in our lives as well too. So I pray that you would help us see from your word the things that you are doing in Saul and know and believe that you can do those things in us too. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's take time to look at this transformation that took place in the life of Saul. Right after Saul's conversion and the recovery of his sight, we see that Saul is now with the disciples who are in Damascus, which is amazing to think about because these disciples that he's with, without a doubt, were probably some of the ones that Saul had originally attended to arrest they were probably the ones that are the whole reason he had come to Damascus to begin with. And now Saul is counted as one of them. 
In verse 20, we see that Saul goes immediately into the synagogue at Damascus to publicly proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is proclaiming and telling the people that Jesus is the authoritative, divinely anointed king. In verse 21, we see that all these people in the synagogue are amazed that they're hearing this message about Jesus from Saul. They know who Saul is. They know his reputation. They know about everything that he had done in Jerusalem. And they know why he was coming to Damascus as well. And they're astounded by now what they are hearing coming out of the mouth of Saul. And they should be. I mean, this Saul, who is headed to Damascus, to the synagogue, actually, in Damascus, with letters in his hand to arrest believers, is now in this synagogue in Damascus as a believer. And he's armed with the gospel, proclaiming salvation to all who would believe. Paul went with letters to arrest, but arrived with the gospel to save. And that is a radical transformation. And it's a transformation that is continuing to grow and evolve in Saul, according to verse 22. Look what it says. It says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Saul is growing in his strength and the knowledge in the gospel of Jesus. He's growing so much that he's stumping all of his opponents about the person and work of Jesus. Saul was proving to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and those in Damascus could not stand against him. They couldn't argue against him. They couldn't refute him or put him down. So this Jesus that Saul had wanted to destroy, he has now come to defend so since the Jews could not refute Saul, they decide, you know, we need to kill him instead. Which is amazing to think about, that this Saul, who had not very long ago approved the death of Stephen, is now the target of death himself. But this plot to kill Saul, somehow it was revealed, it was made known to Saul, an escape plan was made for him, right? I mean, this almost reads like a movie, doesn't it? I mean, we could call this Saul, Escape from Damascus. I mean, it's like Escape from Alcatraz, or Luke and Han and Leia when they needed to escape from the Death Star, or Buzz Lightyear and Woody and his friends that needed to escape from the preschool. I mean, this is what it reads like, like these disciples spring into action and they say, we need an escape plan for Saul, what can we do? Well, they know that all of the people are watching through the gates around the city wall, so they decide, hey, here's a great idea. Let's put Saul in a basket, and let's get him through a hole in the wall and lower him to the ground. Like baskets being lowered to the ground happened all the time or something in Damascus. I'm not sure what they were thinking with this plan, but the plan worked. Saul escaped, and he headed down to Jerusalem of all places for him to go. And when Saul arrives in Jerusalem, he tries to meet up with the disciples, but they want nothing to do with him. They still think Saul is this guy that is wanting to arrest Christians, put them in jail, and kill them. 
I mean, they must be thinking this is some plot of his in order to like infiltrate the inner circle of the disciples to get in and get them arrested somehow, and they just don't trust him. So put yourself in Saul's shoes here for a moment. The Jews in Jerusalem who were his friends now are not going to want anything to do with them. They're going to see him as the enemy. They're going to want him eventually killed. And the people that Saul wants to be his friends and the disciples want nothing to do with him. I mean, that's a pretty lonely place to be in that moment if you're Saul, right? But Saul is not completely alone because here comes Barnabas. I love Barnabas. When Barnabas shows up in the book of Acts, he's always doing some really cool things. And Barnabas comes in this moment to do what no one else is willing to do. Barnabas is the one person who believes in Saul and stands up for him. He actually brings Saul before the disciples and testifies on Saul's behalf to say this is his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and he's preaching Jesus boldly in the synagogue in Damascus. Barnabas was Saul's advocate when no one else would stand up for him. And Barnabas is able to convince all of the disciples that Saul's conversion is genuine, that it's true. And a result of Barnabas' work on Saul's, on Saul's behalf in defending him, we find Saul is right back to it in verse 28. Saul may be in a different town, but he's doing the same thing. He's telling whoever he can about Jesus. Saul is probably proclaiming Jesus to Jews that he knew very well in his previous life as a Pharisee. Tells us that Saul is arguing with Hellenists. Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, and he's telling them about Jesus as well. Now, these Hellenists were probably the same group of people that were arguing with Stephen back in Acts chapter 6. And those Hellenists got Stephen killed, right? Remember, Saul was present and approved of the death of Stephen. So here's Saul. I mean, this is amazing. Here he is speaking to people that he knows do not want to hear his message. I mean, he already got ran out of one town because he was disputing with others about Jesus being the Christ. And now he's back at it in another town, probably in a more difficult spot in Jerusalem. But he's doing it anyway. And that is radical. And look, the results are exactly the same, right? Now the Hellenists want to kill Saul, which is a very serious threat, because I'm sure they're thinking about what happened with Stephen. And once again, the believers learn about this threat on Saul's life, and once again, the disciples help him get out of Dodge and head out of town, and this time he leaves Jerusalem and he heads down to Tarshish. And as a result of Saul's conversion experience, we read in verse 31 that it is good news for the church, that the church continues to grow and expand in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that they're experiencing a time of peace, that the church is growing in their fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And Saul is going to disappear from the scene for a while in the book of Acts. We're going to see him several chapters later. So the question becomes, what sort of takeaways can we take from this passage this morning? I think there's five things that we can take away from our passage here. One is that Jesus is central. 
Two, that the Holy Spirit is powerful. Three, that God is providential. Four, suffering is real. And five, believers are essential. So let's break these five down here. First, that Jesus is central. Jesus is who Saul is all about. I mean, we see this in five different occasions in our passage here this morning. First, in verse 20, it says, Paul proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogue. Then in verse 22, it tells us that Saul is proving that Jesus is the Christ in Damascus. In verse 27, Barnabas' testimony about Saul is that he preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And then in verse 28, we see that Saul is now preaching boldly in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. And in verse 25, we read that Saul was disputing with the Hellenists, who we can only assume is about Jesus And you can easily see here that Saul is all about making Jesus known. Jesus is all that Saul wants to talk about. And no matter how much the pressure is or the threat of persecution may be going on with Saul, Jesus is who he's going to talk about. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing is going to deter him from talking about Jesus. He's speaking in this bold way, even though he knows the crowds are going to be against him, even though he knows that there will be threats against his life. He proclaims Jesus boldly. But he also proclaims Jesus with wisdom, right? Which I think is so amazing is he hasn't been following Jesus very long, but yet in verse 22, it tells us that Paul, Saul confounded the Jews about who Jesus is. And we saw in verse 29 that Saul is disputing with the Hellenists about Jesus, which tells us that Saul knew Jesus really, really well. If you're going to win a debate, if you're going to win an argument, you need to know your topic well. You need to know your topic inside and out. And what we see is this is happening in the life of Saul and really in a very short period of time too. But this is what happens when Jesus becomes central in your life. When Jesus becomes central, what happens is is you want to know Jesus more. You want to know more about Jesus. You want to know more about how do I see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God in the passages in Scripture? How can I know more about the character of Jesus, his power? How do I know more about the heart of Jesus, his mission, and who he is and what he's all about? This is what's happening in Saul, is he is all about knowing more and more of Jesus. But I am convinced of this. This is just not for book knowledge or for intellectual knowledge or just for the sake of winning arguments. Because I believe that the more you come and know the person and work of Jesus is what will happen is, is that you will love Jesus more. That your affections will grow for Jesus I'll tell you, I mentioned this uh, a while back that this summer I read this really great book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. The whole book is about discovering the heart of Jesus and who Jesus is. 
And can I tell you, as I read that book, my affections and my thankfulness for Jesus grew as I saw more of who he was. And that's what we want to see happen, that as Jesus becomes central, that becomes central because we know him more, and when we know him more, we love him more, and when we love him more, we want to know him more. And this cycle begins to happen. And that as this happens, what happens is you become more confident in your knowledge of Jesus because you spent so much time with him. You know him so well. You become more confident in knowing who he is. And that when you become more confident, you naturally want to share that with others. You want to proclaim Jesus and make him known and say, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for me. So let's be a people who are about making Jesus central in our lives. Now, you may be wondering this morning, well, how do I do that? Or maybe you're thinking this morning, I don't know if I can do that. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking and you're saying, I don't even know if I want to make Jesus central in my life. Well, this is where this second point comes into play and is so important, is that the Holy Spirit is powerful. If you want to know how to make Jesus central, you ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to be working in you. This is what happens in the life of Saul. Remember verse 22 where it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength in confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The only way that Saul is able to grow in that strength of knowing who Jesus is is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. That he can know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Only the Holy Spirit can make such a radical transformation take place in the life of Saul. And this is just a testimony to the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. He is powerful enough to create radical change in someone like Saul. And if he is able to create such a radical change in someone like Saul, then the Holy Spirit can do things in us as well. The Holy Spirit can do things that we think that nobody else can do. The Holy Spirit can do it. The Holy Spirit is powerful He is powerful in Saul. Only the Holy Spirit can take a guy who was putting Christians to death to telling others about how they can be saved by Jesus. And if you're wondering to myself, how can Jesus become more central in my life? How can I proclaim Jesus with boldness? How can I speak of Jesus with wisdom? Look to the Holy Spirit Pray to him and say, help me, because the truth is the Holy Spirit is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago in the life of Saul. 2,000 years have not passed, and the Holy Spirit's power has dipped. The power of the Holy Spirit is the same. And if there is one thing that we can be confident about knowing, what is the Holy Spirit all about? What does he want to do? It is this. He wants to make Jesus known. That's his role. That is his job, is to proclaim and let the truth and beauty of Christ known to others. So, let's be asking the Holy Spirit to do that which is his job. It's right up his alley. That is a prayer that the Holy Spirit says, yes, I will work that. 
So the Holy Spirit is powerful. Thirdly, God is providential. We have seen twice in this passage that there were plans that were made to have Saul killed. And we also saw twice in this passage that those plans to kill Saul were revealed to Saul and the disciples. Now, we don't know all the details of how did this all happen, how did that all come about, but we do know this. It is not by accident, it is not by chance or good luck that these plans were revealed to them. It is God who knows the hearts and minds of men, and it is God who reveals the plans of men. That even though God is not named specifically in this passage, we know how God works, right? Because we know God as we see him throughout scripture, and we know that God is the one who is preserving Saul and keeping him alive both in Damascus and in Jerusalem. These plots to kill Saul may have been revealed to Saul by men, but it was actually made known by the sovereign knowledge and will of God. He is the one who ultimately saved Saul. This is how plans are revealed, only by the sovereign Lord. And because he is sovereign over all people and all things and all plans, God in his goodness revealed this plot to Saul. And this is what we mean when we talk about the providence of God. When we talk about the providence of God, it means this. It is where the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God meet in our lives. That providence tells us that not only is God sovereign in all that he does for us, but he is also good in all that he does for us. And that is a wonderful, wonderful combination for us to see about God. He is sovereign and he is good. But I believe this basket escaping event tells us a little something about Saul as well. Is that Saul doesn't always run headlong into persecution. I mean, as we go through, continue to go through the book of Acts, we're going to see Saul is going to suffer a lot of persecution. And if you read the epistles, what we're going to learn about Paul is that Paul does suffer a lot. If you read the end of 2 Corinthians, he talks about all the suffering that he has gone through for the cause of Christ. And so when we read all these things, we think, man, you know, Saul must always just be running headlong into persecution. But that's not necessarily the case because he avoids it twice in this passage. When the first plot is revealed, their mindset was not, well, you know what? I guess God's going to do what God's going to do. He's sovereign over everything, so I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. No, instead, they come up with a plan of all things, luring him in a basket to get him out of town. I mean, what we see here is that Saul and the disciples recognize that this plot has been revealed to them by God, and so what they do is they act on what has been revealed to them. They act on what God has done for them. And it's not like, well, God's providentially doing something, so we'll just sit back here as spectators and see what happens. No, God reveals, and then they move. They act when God reveals. And I think that's a good word for us to see, that when God provides means, we act on those means and we move. God's providence is really good news for us. Because here's the thing, no one can surprise God. No one can outmaneuver God. God reigns and rules 
over all nations, over all peoples, over all situations, over all things. And this should give us great confidence in every situation in life that we face. God knows what he's doing in you and in those around you. God knows how he's going to work it out because God always wins. I believe that Saul's boldness in proclaiming Christ is rooted in the knowledge that God's providence rules over every part of his life and every part of the universe. And the providence of God, I believe, is something vital for us to hold on to in connecting to this fourth point here, that suffering is real. We have seen twice in this passage that suffering comes Saul's way. It follows him, right? It's in Damascus. It follows him into Jerusalem. And it is going to follow him the rest of his life. Suffering is going to be trademarked in Saul's life. So suffering is a reality for the life of the believer. The question is not, well, what do we do if suffering comes? No, the question needs to be, what do we do when suffering comes? Because we know that suffering is a reality in the life of the believer. And that's why these first three points, I think, are so important. Because when Jesus is central and Jesus is supreme and the greatest treasure in your life, then suffering for him is worth it. You will suffer well when you see Jesus is worth suffering for. And secondly, when we see and know that the Holy Spirit is powerful, suffering can be endured. And when we see that God is providential over all things, then suffering has meaning and purpose and design within it. So, having an accurate view of the Trinity is not only vital for our Christian growth, but it's so important for our ability to suffer well. When you see that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all three working in you and for you in your suffering, you will have strength to endure. Because you are not suffering in, on your own. You are not suffering in isolation. You are not suffering in your own strength. Instead, you suffer in the power of all three persons of the Trinity working in you and for you. And that is good news. Finally, the fifth point here this morning. Believers are essential. I mean, where would Saul be without Barnabas, right? I mean, here's Barnabas, the only person in the city of Jerusalem, the only believer who is willing to stand up for him and advocate for him on his behalf. We need each other in the body of Christ. We need to be surrounded by a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need the support of one another. We need the encouragement of one another. We need someone who believes in us and stands up with us. We need someone who's going to come alongside us and walk with us down this road of life, no matter how long that road is, and be with us and help us on the way. We need Christian friends 
And I think that's a really important word. I just saw an article on Gospel Coalition this week talking about Christian friendship. And I think the reason the article is talking about this is because a lot of times we lack that in our lives. And yet it's vitally important that there is someone that will come alongside us to lift us up when we're down, to be with us and help us when we're discouraged or frustrated or hurting or in need. We need someone who's willing to sit with us and listen to us in our struggles of life that we go through. We need someone who is ready to speak gospel truths into our lives and lift us up and encourage us. We need someone who is willing to pray with you and pray for you when you need it. We are not meant to go through this Christian life alone. We are meant to go through it with others. This is one of the reasons why God created the church, so that we can go through this life together, and not just on Sunday morning, right? But throughout the week, I mean, that's why we have gospel community groups. That's why we have discipleship groups, because we want to come alongside each other and help each other grow in this Christian life and encourage each other and do this very thing. Be Barnabases for one another. This is where radical change came for the life of Paul. And this is where radical change can come for you and me as well. Being committed to making Jesus central in your life. Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to make all of this happen. Trusting in the providence of God to be working for you. Enduring suffering through the Trinitarian work in your life. And doing this Christian life side by side with other believers. When all of these things are working in you, radical change will come. And there's nothing that can stand against it. Let's pray. Father God, where would we be without you? And yet because you are here and you've sent your son Jesus to save and your Holy Spirit to work in us, radical change can happen. So I pray that you would be with us this morning. Lord, where, where does radical change need to take place in our lives? Man, be working powerfully in us. And I know that we probably also know people that are around us that we're burdened for, that we want to see radical change take place in someone else's life that we love or care for. God, be working there. Family members, loved ones, neighbors, co-workers, friends. God, we pray for radical life-changing work to take place. And thankful to know that we don't pray this prayer wondering if this can happen, but that we can pray confidently knowing that it does happen because it happened in Saul and you are the same God today that can happen in others as well. So I pray that you would help us to pray. Keep depending on the Holy Spirit's power. Keep trusting in God and what he is doing and help us make Jesus central in our lives that we would do that side by side. Pray this in your name. Amen.